The first Thanksgiving didn't happen because life was easy. In September 1620, when the pilgrims left England, heading for the United States, little did they know, by the time the next fall arrived, November of 1621, they would celebrate the harvest, they would recognize God's faithful hand, but of the 102 who left, only 52 remained. The first Thanksgiving didn't happen because life was easy. Because there were no challenges. Matter of fact, as you went through the winter and the spring, nearly every day someone was dying on that original uh, Plymouth Rock group of pilgrims that landed here. Life was not easy. But this is what they knew. God is good. And God is faithful. And God is worthy to be worshipped. And he deserves to be praised. And we need to give him thanks. God had worked in a wonderful way as the harvest had come in. And there was a, a, a new sense of hope dawning in their life. But as they look back, funeral after funeral, sickness after sickness, Their hearts were heavy, but their eyes were lifted to the gracious God of the universe. I want to challenge you this year. Thanksgiving may look a little bit different for many of you. You may not have the large family gathering that you have had in the past. You you may have anxiety as people are getting together. So the challenge is, is this. Whether you're in a small group or large, whether you're by yourself or you're with a mass group of family and friends, keep your focus. Be thankful to our God. In Genesis 3, we see the picture of man's greatest need and God rising up to give us our greatest So despite everything that's going on physically in our world, despite of what may happen economically over the next few days, we look at the great God who promised a Savior and provided salvation. And because of that, we have a reason to give thanks. So take your Bibles this morning and turn me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Thankful for those of you who are here in uh, the worship center. Thankful for those of you who are joining online today as well. Pray that you'd grab your Bible, follow along with us as we trace this foundational chapter in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. We pick up in verse number 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Surely die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now slide down with me to verse number 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15. This is not marked, underlined, circled, noted somewhere in your Bible. I want to encourage you to do this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. The word bruise there in the NIV is translated crush. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And with that, let's pray together. God, would you speak to us today as we open your word Lord, I pray that you would take these uh, moments that we spend together. And Lord, may we be grateful and thankful for the promise of your son. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, may we rejoice in your presence for all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. In your name, amen. Genesis 3 is a foundational and vital chapter to understanding not only the scriptures, but understanding life. Within Genesis 3, we see and can now understand the plight of the world in which we live, how evil entered into the world, and we see the issues of humanity. We see the sin of man, and because of that, we see the separation of God and man. As we look in Genesis chapter 3, we get this picture of Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, and the serpent comes to them. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that God made man in his own image. In his own image, he created them. He created them specially and uniquely, and offered a relationship which was unique to humanity and God. It, God looked at man and said that they were, uh, the man and woman were very good. This was part of his creative design that they would not only be a creation, but they could share in a relationship with him. And then we look at Genesis 3 and we find all of the issues and challenges of life stem from this one foundational chapter in Scripture. Adam and Eve break God's laws and seem to be defeated and hopeless. And yet through it all, God promises a savior. He provides salvation and a victor in defeat. It looked like Adam and Eve had blown it and they should be cast away from the presence of God forever. And yet God steps in and says, at your worst, I'm going to promise and show you and give you my 
And so that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. So over the next few weeks, we're going to pull out a couple of Old Testament passages and some New Testament passages with this one thought as we conclude the year. We need to be thankful for Jesus. If everything is in a tumultuous season around us, we need to be thankful for Jesus. If my life and my health and my family and my relationships and my money is not where it needs to be, I still need to be thankful for what God has done for me in Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're focusing on this being thankful for Jesus. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we get the first picture of Jesus in the Bible. But let's begin back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1, where it says that and shows us that they are in the Garden of Eden, but there is one there who is the serpent. And so we see the serpent and his strategy. The serpent and his strategy. He comes along and he... Uh, not unusually has a conversation with Eve. We don't know if this was a usual kind of thing, if this was unusual. It didn't seem like she was fearful to talk to the serpent, but she begins to talk, and so then Satan begins to unleash his plan. The serpent begins to, to work in his way. He begins to unfold his strategy, and notice the first words that come out of his mouth, has God indeed said. Or did God really say? See, the serpent and his strategy, that opening strategy, is to instill doubt. He, he wants to cause us to doubt. Did God really say? And can I tell you that this theme of doubting Scripture has prevailed for thousands of years since then. But when one brings and causes doubt about the Word of God, then they are being used as an enemy of the evil one. Now, we looked just a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times there will be those who depart from the faith. In other words, they leave the Word of God. Doubt has been driven in. Doubt has been waged in their mind. And because of that, there is the, the issue of walking away and departing from the faith. So that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul deals with this again, he says, now in these last days, there's going to be people who are lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. He then leads us down into one of the most wonderful sections of all scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, where it says in that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that the word of God, it is breathed out through the work of his spirit. And yet the evil one seeks to cause doubt. He can do this on a college campus and he can cause this in a liberal Sunday school class. The picture is, is that when we put question marks and when the evil one begins to question God's word, he begins to push us on a slippery slope away from God. Has God really said? Did God really say? But we see his plan goes on. He first tries to raise suspicion. Then 
as we look, notice, notice the rest of that sentence as it comes out. He said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of, uh, eat the fruit of the trees. Uh, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Secondly, he causes dissatisfaction. Did God say that, that you could eat of every tree? She says, well, there's one tree in the middle of the garden. So what the evil one does is causes this dissatisfaction to say, there's that one tree. Look at that. Now, notice his question and her response, and look back with me in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 16. Notice back in chapter 3, verse 1. Has, uh, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. Is that what God said? Notice back with me in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. The question is, is, is how is the evil one instilling doubt and then causing dissatisfaction. God has said, you can look at all of these trees and you can eat as freely as you want. I'm going to show my bountiful generosity to you and you can have all that you want. And the evil one comes back and says, has God really said you can not eat of every tree? He turns her focus to that one. Oh, how easy we can lose focus. During the quarantine, you know, from September 5th through October 1st, our family was pretty much at home. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of time I didn't feel that good. And so I spent time during the daytime watching daytime television. And a lot of daytime television stinks. So I'm watching uh, all of these fixer-uppers and house rehabs and all of these kinds of shows because I really respect people who do that because I, I am like clueless with, I mean, I have hands and that's just to pick up a fork and knife. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not that handy of a guy. All right. I can't fix things like that. I'm not mechanical. I mean, what you see up here is the best I got. All right. I mean, that, this is about it. You know, they ask, why did you go into the ministry? Well, because I can't do anything else. All right. So, so the truth of the matter is, is I'm, I'm just not handy, but I, but I look at these shows and I think, man, look at that kitchen. Wow. Look what they did with that bathroom. And my bathroom's not that nice. Then you see all the commercials coming through. Oh, look at this car. Look at this car. And this GM commercial, you know, he says, I got you a little something too. And I love it. I love it. I hate that commercial. All right. I mean, we, we get this constant bombardment with all the things in life that, that cause us not to be satisfied with our car or our house or our kitchen or our bathroom or our clothes. It's the, the lure of the evil one to cause dissatisfaction, to, to lead us away from the things of God. And listen, this might be a temptation this week. As you look and say, man, this is not like all the other Thanksgivings we had. And I can grow dissatisfied with the circumstances around me. And I want to tell you something today. Our God has not changed. He is good in 2020, just like he was in 2019 and back in 1900. God is good. Don't buy into the dissatisfaction. But then we see... She says, man, we can't eat of this tree. And she adds then to God's word. He says, we can't even touch it. That's legalism. She adds, lest we die. And here the evil one begins to promote 
deception. Because in verse number four, he says this. You shall not surely die. You're God's special creation. You're the only one that walks with God in the cool of the day. You're, you're the top of the, of the heap here. You, you're, you're the ones, you're, you're the top of creation. God's not going to kill you. You're not going to have to face punishment. And there are many today that hold this same kind of idea. God's like a doting grandfather. He, he laughs when the, the child says a bad word or, or he, he smiles when he watches the grandchild disobey their parents. And yet, there are those who want to take the love and the grace of God and take the pictures of God's holiness and righteousness and justice and just cut those passages out of Scripture. Passages like Exodus 34, 7, where it says that God will by no means clear the guilty. They want to say God's good. Don't be dissatisfied with him. He'll just let you do whatever you want, hang as long as you want, and nothing will happen. And it's a lie of the evil one. John 8, calls him the father of all liars. He's a liar from the beginning. And here he just tells an outright lie. You will not surely die. And there are people who turn to God's word and say, you know, it's not about what God's word says. It's about how I feel or what I think. And I just feel that there's, there's no way a good God would allow anyone to, to suffer in eternity without him and go to hell. And, and I just believe that God's a God of love and grace. And I tell you, God is a good God. And God is so good and so true to himself that he cannot, he cannot compromise in the areas of unrighteousness. He cannot compromise in the area of justice. He is absolutely holy, 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 and sin must be punished. Some of you today, you, you've had those moments where, where you think, ah, man, I can do this and get away with it. And the Bible reminds us the wages of sin is death. But notice with me in verse number five, because the evil one, as he comes, he seeks to distort perspective. Notice what he says in verse number five. Hey, on the day that you eat of this, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Be liberated. Be autonomous. Be who you want to be. Do your own thing. Live for the moment. God don't want you to have any fun and be like him no more. God's trying to keep you in the dark. God's trying to keep you in the box. And you need to kick the box open and be free and liberated and autonomous. Be the captain of your own ship. Be the master of your own fate. And so we find that as Eve's attention is drawn to the tree, she sees that it is good for food. And it's pleasant to the eyes. 
And it's going to make her wise like God is her thought and belief. And so she takes of the fruit and gives some to her husband. Notice with me, verse number six, she gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Secondly, we not only see the serpent and his strategy, but we see the sin and its tragedy. We see the sin. Oh, they were able to take of the fruit. And and for that moment, maybe it was like, wow, look at us. And then it was, wow, look at us. And the promises of knowing good and evil and that sense of the presence of God was now different as sin had entered into their life. What is the tragedy of sin? As we look around us, we see the effects of sin all around, not not only in humanity, but in all of nature. So what happened at that moment, at that very moment when they partook of the fruit? Well, we see sin and how it causes separation. Notice with me down in verse number uh, 8 and 9. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Sin brought separation. There once was this perfect fellowship of man with God and walking in the cool of the day. And now sin has brought this sense of separation. Sin has brought a division in this once perfect and wonderful relationship. They were promised so much and the one that they needed the most, now their relationship with him has been busted up and broken. Reminds me of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59. He says, is the Lord's hand too short that he can't save or is his ear too heavy that he can't hear? But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And here sin comes into the equation and man and woman are now separated from God. But sin not only brought separation, but sin brought shame. Notice, when they sinned, they went and they tried to cover themselves up and they hid themselves. They were afraid and they were ashamed. Like a, a little baby who's innocent and, and unknowing who, who can uh, just smile and coo when you take his, uh, when you change his clothes and he just lays there naked. They were just innocent. And now the innocence is gone. And now they try to sew leaves together to cover up themselves. And can I tell you, for thousands of years, men and women have tried to do this. They have tried to cover themselves up and hide from the presence of a holy and awesome and wonderful God. They have hid themselves behind 
churches and religion. They have hid themselves behind religions and denominations. They have hid themselves behind the virtue of their parents. They have hid themselves behind giving to the church, and they have never had that experience of of truly coming face to face with God. They'd rather hide and cover themselves. For the first time now, they have shame. Jeremiah, preaching in Jeremiah 6.15, said that the people were, were totally unashamed and they did not blush anymore. This kind of sounds like our society today. You know, shame and the conviction and guilt of sin can be a very healthy thing because it brings us to a point of need. And yet it's interesting what we find today. We find as Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, go back and, and look that, write that down if you have it. But Philippians 3, 18 and 19 talks about those who are enemies of the cross and who are, are heading toward destruction. He said that their, their God is their belly, their end is destruction. And then he says this, and their glory is their shame. In other words, they glorify the very things that they should be shameful about. So that they will hold signs up that say, we want to kill babies. Or we'll wear hats that, that look like private parts. Or we'll, we'll go out and we'll march. And what they're doing is they're glorying in their shame. And listen, when people get to that point, the end for them is absolute destruction. But we, when we feel that sense of guilt, when we feel that sense of shame and God uses that in our life, that's a tool of conviction through the working of the Holy Spirit. Sin brings separation from God, but it doesn't have to end there. Sin also brings shame. Thirdly, we see that sin brings conflict. Sin brings conflict because when the Lord steps into the scene and he says, where are you? Please understand that God never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. What's going on? Well, we're God, we're hiding because we're naked. Well, who told you? And notice, as the conflict arises, and you, you just have to look at this and say, oh, what a picture of humanity today. Notice, Verse number nine, the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. (laughs) Adam, her partner, her protector, her now is has his, the t-shirt on that says, you know, I'm with sinful. Look at her. And, and the picture here is very interesting because he doesn't only just say, God, it was the woman, but he says, it was the woman that you gave me. The finger is not only at her, but the finger is at God. So now there's conflict. We see this coming between man and his relationship with God and man and his relationship with his wife. 
Now, how do you think Eve felt at that moment? Well, the Bible tells us, because the Lord questions her, and she said, it was the serpent. Sin brings conflict. It brings conflict in relationships. It brings conflict in marriage. It brings conflict in families. It brings conflict in work relationships and at school, and it, it shows itself in so many ways as it, as it raises its ugly head. But notice the real issue here. No one wants to take responsibility. Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. She says, it was the serpent. You know, the old joke is, is, you know, the serpent wasn't left with a leg to stand on after that, you know. So anyway, the, 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 picture, the picture is, is, does this sound like society today? God, it's not my fault. It's my parents. It's my siblings. It's my environment. It was my, my finances. It was the, the culture. It was the school I went to, the public school, the private school, the home school. It, it was because I, I was raised, and, and, and it wasn't my fault. It was my friends who did that, and it was my schoolmate who pressured me to do this. You know, uh, the first time I, I really felt this sense of conflict and shame in my life, I mean, really felt it. Home relationships are, are, are different, but I mean, the first time I really, really felt it outside of a home relationship, and I, I remember this is one of these instilled memories in my mind. I was in kindergarten. I had afternoon kindergarten, and so I was, I'm riding uh, the bus to school. I, I go to school, and my neighbor girl is sick. Her name's Robin, and so my teacher gives me the papers for her for that day. Well, there's another girl who's at my bus stop as well. And she starts riding me the moment I get on the bus. What's that? Well, that's Robin's homework. I got to drop it off after school. Oh, Robin, you like Robin. You like Robin. All this, your girlfriend, boyfriend, all this stuff that, you know, kindergartners, girl, girls still have cooties. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so the, the picture is, is everything is just wrong. And she begins to pressure me and finally say, I say something like this. I don't have to bring it to her. And she says, Yes, you do. I said, no, I don't have to. And I walked off the school bus, and instead of walking to Robin's house, I threw her homework papers up in the wind and let them blow off. I felt liberated until the next day of school. And when my teacher called me up, and Robin was back at school, and she said, he just threw my papers up and let them blow off in the wind. I could do nothing at that moment but cry. I knew I'd been caught. I was busted. And out of shame and the sense of conflict rearing in my heart, I knew I messed up. Sin brought conflict. But then lastly, we see that sin also brought suffering. We're going to quickly look at this. 
the serpent was going to crawl. The woman, if you look down verse 16 and following, was going to experience pain and childbirth and relational issues with her husband. And man was going to work in a cursed world. And Romans 6.23 was going to be proven to be true. The wages of sin is going to be death. They were both going to die. The world as we know it was going to change and be affected by the curse. And they were going to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But through this story, there's one verse, a small thread, a little key that opens this huge door of hope for us. Notice back with me in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. And we think about as the picture is bleak and hope seems lost and they seem defeated and suffering seems inevitable, we see it the seed, and his victory. Notice in verse number 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a promise as we think about the seed and his victory. This is the first time a gospel message is preached in the, new, in, in the Bible. We think about the gospel being something shared in the New Testament. Can I tell you, the first time the gospel was shared was in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve and a serpent were there to hear it. And he says, I'm going to put enmity, warfare, conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. But we have to answer the question, who is the seed of the woman? It's interesting, a hundred times in Scripture, the Bible pictures seed as coming from the man for procreation and the egg from the woman for fertilization. But here, the picture is, is there's going to be a seed of the woman. What does this mean and how do we understand this? Well, we understand this years later in Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before Jesus would come, where he says, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And in Matthew 1, 23, as it echoes that sentiment, that a virgin shall conceive and bear forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is that opening picture of the the seed of the woman who was going to be the virgin-born God-man, Jesus Christ, who was going to come and be the Savior and the victor in their defeat. That's the picture. So that we have a God to be thankful for. He promises a Savior and He provides salvation for us. He says, I will put enmity, this sense of warfare between your seed and her seed. This virgin-born Savior is going to come. And ultimately, the seed of the woman, Jesus, crushes the serpent's head. Jesus crushes the serpent's head. Now, as we think about Jesus in his life, we understand that he was born of a virgin, that he lived an absolutely sinless life as the God-man, and he would give his life as the precious lamb without spot or blemish. John 1, 29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that Jesus, though tempted by the devil, would never sin. Though sought to be led off course, even by Peter in Matthew chapter 16, as we see 
Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a few verses later, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not going to let you die. It's not going to happen. I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to fight for you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Though the influence was real and the temptation was there, we find Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God, would ultimately live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sin. It is impossible, Hebrews 10 tells us, for the blood of bulls and goats to forgive us of sin. Yet Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness for sin. So God sent his perfect sacrifice, his son, the Lord Jesus, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, and there on the cross, when Jesus declares, it is finished, he pays the sin debt for mankind, and he gave up his spirit and died. And you could imagine at that moment, Satan thinks that he has won. And yet, three days later, as the angels go to the tomb in Matthew 28, 6, the angel says to them, he is not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And so today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not recognizing We're not recognizing a dead Savior who lived a good life. We're recognizing and remembering a living Savior who gave his life for our sin. He is alive. When we go through Thanksgiving, our Lord is alive. Listen, he's alive. That should change our focus, should change our heart. Jesus rose from the dead and defeated sin. And at that moment, defeated Satan. But you know today that Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth. He's still active. He's still instilling doubt. He is still causing dissatisfaction. He is still pervading through his acts of of deception and distortion. Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth. But can I tell you the story's not over yet. Because Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. But Romans chapter 16, 20 tells us that the God of peace will crush Satan shortly. What's he talking about? Revelation chapter 19. As we have led up over the last few weeks of the signs of the times, and we've looked at Jesus and the coming of the Son of Man. And Revelation 19, 11, He is coming in, pictured as riding on a white horse. And on his crown, and his head are many crowns. And his eyes are like a fire. And, and in his head there is a sharp two-edged sword. And his name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in Revelation in chapter 20 and verse number 10, we find ultimately and eternally the devil is cast into the lake of fire forever. His crushing is coming. His defeat has already been established at the cross, but his crushing is coming. The seed in his victory. Jesus wins. Satan loses. Good wins. Evil loses. Righteousness wins. Unrighteousness loses. We see the victory. Oh, we can experience the victory of the cross. 
But I love Romans 16, 20, because it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That because he wins, we win with him. <laughs> we have victory today. But not only does Jesus crush the serpent, but Jesus provides for us. Jesus provides the free gift of salvation for humanity. I want you to go back and notice something with me that I think it's essential that we take note of. Notice with me back in verse number 8. Remember Adam and Eve had just eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? It is essential for us to understand that Adam and Eve didn't go looking for God. God went looking for them. And the Bible tells us today still, in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. God went looking for them. And today, whether you're watching online or here, I want to tell you, God's walking, initiating with you. He takes the initiative to move in your life, to draw you to salvation, and to draw you to himself. You can try to hide, but you're not going to hide from God. But the Bible tells us that God would go looking for Adam and Eve and their sinfulness and provide a Savior and provide salvation. And today, there's only one way. The seed of the woman, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that's the only hope that we have for salvation. To recognize, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've broken your laws. I've thought things, said things, done things that have displeased you. So, God, I know I stand before you guilty. But when you feel that tug of the Spirit working in your life, you cry out and say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose again. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I believe, I trust in you. And when we place our faith in Jesus alone, the wonderful truth of Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, can happen in your life.